to our new series called Fact Check, the most misquoted Bible verses. Over the next five weeks, we'll be looking at what I believe or perceive to be the most five misquoted Bible verses of the Bible. On January 20, 2009, at the inauguration ceremony for President Barack Obama, um, Supreme Court uh, Chief Justice John Roberts stood wearing his traditional robe on an elevated podium or platform in Washington, D.C. There were over one million people there to watch this um, whole inauguration unfold, and there were millions other others that were watching on their television set. The highlight of the ceremony, indeed, was when Obama placed his left hand on Abraham Lincoln's Bible, and he raised his right hand to recite the presidential oath of the swearing-in. Justice Roberts then asked Obama this question. He said, are you prepared to take the oath, Senator? To which Obama, of course, answered, I am. Roberts then instructed Obama to repeat after him, which he said, the justice minister, I, Barack Obama, do solemnly swear. However, about halfway through that statement, Obama interrupts Justin Roberts and begins repeating the line. Maybe it was butterflies or nervousness on that day. So Judge Roberts just pauses and lets Obama repeat the line that he had just made. That's when things became a little bit confusing after that moment. Justice Roberts then quotes the next line of the oath incorrectly. He was kind of caught off guard, probably. He was supposed to say this statement. He was supposed to say that I will faithfully execute the office of President of the United States. Instead, Roberts said that I will execute the office of President of the United States faithfully. He moved the word faithfully to the end of the sentence to which Obama repeated the incorrect statement that Justice Roberts had incorrectly quoted. Thankfully, after the initial hiccup of that little problem, the remainder of the oath was administered correctly and without flaw. But because of the part that was misquoted and the oath being so heavily based on the American Constitution, the legal counsel of the White House had a special session that night, all night, to talk about the misquoted swearing-in oath by President Obama and the Chief Justice Minister. They determined that there would be probably a legal challenge if they didn't redo the oath. So the next day, under the direction of legal counsel, the oath was repeated again, this time correctly, with President Obama, Chief Justice Roberts, in the map room of the White House in front of a few witnesses that day. Perhaps you're wondering, as I was wondering, because I don't really know a whole lot about American politics or Constitution, why would it matter that the oath was misquoted? Well, I read a little bit and I was informed that it, when it comes to the American Constitution, which the presidential oath, swearing-in oath, is based on the, on the American Constitution, it really matters. Because legal matters, words matter, correctness matters, and misquoting the presidential swearing-in oath based on the American Constitution could and would probably lead to some legal challenges. So why did I say all of that? Because of this. In many ways, it's the same with God's Word, God's Bible. The Bible is the constitution for humanity. Did you know that? And it is extremely important that we avoid misquoting His constitution, a.k.a. the Bible. 
And if you're surprised, it may surprise you this morning that one of the most misquoted verses in the Bible comes from Paul's letter to the church at Philippi when he writes this verse in chapter 4, verse 13. Say this with me, church. For I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13 has been quoted by sports teams. It's been quoted by um, people putting it on their bumper sticker or, uh, or putting it on as a bumper sticker on their car, used as taglines, given as a rally cry, used on the quoted on the battlefield, spoken and misquoted by many, many, many people. Have you ever used Philippians chapter 4, verse 13? Have you ever quoted that one? Put your hands up. Uh, there's probably a lot of us, at least once or twice, or if not a few times, we've misquoted that verse. Hollyfield made the verse popular a few years ago when he inscribed Philippians chapter 4, verse 13 on his boxing robe before fighting Mike Tyson. So he actually had Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, and then he had these words, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. Put the robe on and owed into the arena he went. He entered into the boxing ring with Mike Tyson, and they were going to have a showdown. He was basically saying to Mike Tyson, based on Philippians chapter, uh, chapter 4, verse 13, Mike, I'm going to beat you. And guess what Hollyfield did? He actually beat Mike Tyson in that fight. However, later, Hollyfield, in another fight, decided that he would wear the same rowboat into the arena. Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. This time he's going to fight Lennox Lewis. He was telling Lennox Lewis, through Christ, I'm going to pound you. I'm going to win. But Hollyfield fought the fight but didn't do all things because he lost to Lennox Lewis. What happened? Are you scratching your head this morning? He wears it out. It works for the fight against Mike Tyson. He wears out the same robe that says, Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And Lennox Lewis beats him. Perhaps, and I'm not trying to judge Hollyfield because he has a fantastic spiritual story to tell in his own life of how he came to know Jesus and how Jesus changed his life. I'm not trying to judge Hollyfield, but perhaps he was misquoting the context of Philippians 4.13 by putting it on his robe and going out into the boxing arena. You see, Philippians chapter 4, 4, chapter, uh, chapter 4 verse 13 has become this catch-all phrase for many of us that we often quote it because whatever I feel like I need to do, I'm believing that God will give me this extra measure of power and strength so that I can do all things, whatever I want to do, I can do it. Based on Philippians 4.13, I want to climb that mountain. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I want to swim across the Bay of Funday. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I, I, want to, I, I, want to, I want to be famous. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I want $100 million in my bank account. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I, I want to beat Lennox Lewis. I can do, well, I guess that one's already been tried and it didn't work, did it? Unfortunately, we only have this interest in four of the words of the 11 words in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, which we often misquote and just cherry-pick these four words from this, this verse. I can do everything. I can do everything. We freely use these four words to bolster our efforts, to achieve greatness, to find relationship bliss, to have financial fortune, or some other success in our life. We often say, I can do everything. And we quote that verse, but only those four verses, or only those four words. 
Many of us misquote Philippians chapter 4, verse 13 because we simply overlook or deliberately choose to overlook the context of what Paul is saying in the entire chapter, chapter 4. So if you'll help me this morning, we're, we're going to back up the bus a few verses to verse 10 to see what Paul is talking about. Here we are in Philippians chapter 4, verse 10. Excuse me. How I praise the Lord that you are concerned about me again. I know you have always been concerned for me, but you didn't have the chance to help me. Then Paul goes on to write this. Not that I was ever in need, for I have learned how to be content with whatever I have. And then Paul goes on to say this. I know how to live on almost nothing or with everything. I have learned the secret of living in every situation, whether it is with a full stomach or an empty, which with plenty or with little. So this sets up the context now of verse 13 of Philippians chapter 4. For, say this with me church, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. As Paul is writing this letter from prison, did you know that? He is in not a very good place. He is in actually a very horrible condition. He is writing to the Christians at the Philippi church, and he is saying, this letter, he's writing to them. And he admits that he has learned, even when he's writing the letter from prison, he is saying to them, I have learned to be what, church? I've learned to be content. I've learned to be content. There is something I've noticed whenever we misquote Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, that this is what's happening that we regularly misquote Philippians 4.13 from a place of discontentment rather than from a place of contentment. Paul is writing this letter wrote to the people at Philippi from, from from a place of contentment. He is saying, I know what it is to have an empty stomach. I know what it is to have a full stomach. I know what it is to have everything. And I know what it is to have nothing. I know what it is to be in prison. I'm writing this letter from prison. He is writing from a place of contentment rather than a place of discontentment. He could have easily have been discontent. But he realized a place of contentment. We often use Philippians chapter 4, verse 13 from a place of discontentment. I'm not happy in this relationship. I'm not happy with my work. I'm not happy with my employees. I'm not happy with, with this, or I'm not happy with that. It's a place of discontentment. I want things to change. And we often quote Philippians chapter 4, verse 13 from that place of discontentment. I can do everything. I'm going to make it happen through Christ who gives me strength, rather than from a place of contentment. Paul was not rallying the people of Philippi to go out and accomplish great feats. He was not telling them to go climb mountains or to to go down and to, to repel down into dark valleys. He was not saying any of that. He was saying, you must remember in your relationship with God, you must trust God and God only. That's what he was saying. We often forget this core principle when it comes to contentment. We often forget this, that contentment is birthed from trusting God. The more that we trust God, the more contentment we have. If we trust God a little, then we will have a little what? A little contentment. Because contentment in our life is basically birthed on our level of trust in in Christ or in Jesus. And the more we trust God, the more content we'll be in our life. And the less that we trust God with our ways and with our thinking and with our life and our family and everything that we have, then the less contentment we will have in our life. So let me ask you a very pointed question this morning. Do you trust God in everything? 
Now stop and think about that because we often ask that question, do you trust God with everything? And we go, oh yeah, I trust God with everything. We don't even think about the question. Do we trust God with everything? Everything. Everything that you have, everything that you've done, everything that you are doing, everything that you hope to be in the future, are you trusting God with everything you have? Is there nothing you are holding back? You have given everything to God and you're trusting Him. You see, if you trust God in everything, contentment should be a manifestation in your life. If we have a deep-seated commitment and trust to God, then we should have a very manifested contentment in our life. But if we do not trust God deep down and we, we hold things back and we say, okay, God, I'll trust you with the forgiveness of my sins, but I'm not going to trust you with the rest of my life. Or we say, God, I thank you for my family, but I don't really trust you to work things out. So I'm going to have to get involved here a little bit, God. Do we trust God with everything? Because if we do, then there's this great manifestation in our life of contentment. What do we see in Paul's life? Yes, we see that Paul talked about a shipwreck. Yes, we, talked to, we see that he talks about being beaten. We see that he, we, he talks a little bit about his prison conditions. But in overall, when you look at the Apostle Paul's life in the New Testament, what you discover is him not so much talking about his circumstances. He is talking about a level of contentment he has. A trust in Jesus is all that really matters. So perhaps we should ask this question this morning. What is what is contentment? Well, contentment is this. This is one definition that's on your screen this morning. Contentment surfaces from an inward disposition, hopefully a deep-seated trust in God, and is the offspring of humility and of an intelligent consideration of the divine providence and promises of God. And this is the one that we struggle with. It is a healthy understanding of our unworthiness. It is a healthy understanding of our unworthiness. In order to quote Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, accurately, we must grab a hold of this single truth. This is the single truth that we must grab a hold of. Contentment has nothing to do with our circumstances. Our contentment has nothing to do with our circumstances. Say that with me, church. Our contentment has nothing to do with our circumstances. Regrettably, the, the world that we live in and the Western civilization tells us and convinces us that our circumstances has everything to do with our contentment. That if we are caught in a pickle, or we are between a rock and a hard place, or we're in a position that, like, this is bad, society tells us then that should directly affect your contentment. That circumstances will either, if you have good circumstances, will make you a high level of contentment. And if you have bad circumstances in your life, then you're going to have a low level of contentment. What Paul is saying is this, this truth right here. He is saying contentment has nothing to do with your circumstances. It has nothing to do with how good your life is or how bad your life is or how horrible things are going in your life. It has absolutely nothing to do with any of those things. It has everything to do with keeping your eyes on Jesus. You see, we're often told, and it's ingrained within us, the philosophy of the day is, once I get this job, then I'll be what, church? I'll be content. Once I get in a relationship with somebody who will love me and trust me, then I will be what, church? 
I'll be content. Once my kids go off to the Ivy League school, then I will be what, church? I'll be content. All I want is, then I'll be content. All I could have, if only I could have, then I will be content. The truth is, you will never find contentment if your mindset says, if I could only have. Paul understood God's economy better than anybody else that I know of. Where contentment has nothing to do with our circumstances and has everything to do with Jesus. Contentment, Paul realizes in the economy, God's economy, that contentment has nothing to do with our circumstances. It has everything to do with Jesus. That's the context of Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. I have learned, Paul said, the secret of being what? Content. And because I've learned to trust Jesus, which I have a, a manifestation of contentment in my life that comes from a deep-seated trust in Jesus, because I have this in my life, there's no circumstance that will affect me because I know the power and the authority of Jesus Christ, whom I trust, will get me through. Philippians 4.13. So let me ask you a question this morning. Have you learned the secret that Paul is talking about? What is the secret that Paul is talking about? Learning to be content despite whatever our circumstances might be. It doesn't matter what the Bank of Canada does. You know that? It doesn't matter what the government does. It doesn't matter what the economy does. It doesn't matter how somebody may, may ill-treat you or whatever you want to put in there. You have to learn that there is a layer and a level of contentment that has nothing to do with what anybody does. It has everything to do with what Jesus does. Keeping our eyes and focused on Him. Paul expands on this thought to help us better understand Philippians chapter 4 and specifically Philippians chapter 4 verse 13. He's writing to, to Timothy here in chapter 6 and this is what we find in chapter 6. We're going to read a few verses. Anyone who teaches something different is arrogant and lacks understanding. Such a person has an unhealthy desire to quibble over the meaning of words. Then he goes on to say in the latter part of verse 4, this stirs up arguments ending in jealousy, division, slander, and evil suspicions. Then in verse 5, these people always cause trouble. Their minds are corrupt and they have turned their backs on the truth. To them, and we're going to stop here for just a second because I want to talk about this for a sec. A show of godliness is just a way to become wealthy. He's saying that there are some of you in the church, Timothy, you have to be aware of this, there are some who are claiming they have a, a robe of godliness on them, but yet their reason for, for quoting Scripture and for showing the world that they may be godly is so that they can be successful, so that they can achieve something. So, I want to swim the Bay of Fundy. I put on the cloak of Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I can even wear the robe. Put it on. Everybody stands and claps. He's going to do it because, all through, because he can do all things through Christ who strengthens him. I want to climb the highest mountain in the Rockies. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. I, I'm, I'm shrouding it in godliness in order to have success. There is a lot of times in our Christian walk where we cherry pick a verse like Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. We put on the robe to make it look like it's godly in order for us to become successful because we want something. 
We want to achieve something. We want to do something that is very selfish within us. And so we cloud it or we shroud it in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. This is what Paul says to Timothy in the next verse, verse 6. He says, yet true godliness with what? Is itself great what? He's saying great success, Timothy. Great success is this. True godliness with contentment is itself great wealth. He goes on to say this in verse 7. He said, after all, we, we brought nothing with us when we came into the world, and we can't take anything with us when we leave it. Then in verse 8, he goes on to say this. If we have enough, uh, so if we have enough food and clothing, what does, what does Paul say? Let us be content. Paul's words in 1 Timothy chapter 6 offers a better understanding of how we can misquote Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. Just because we can do everything doesn't actually mean that we should do everything. Amen? Just because we can do everything doesn't mean that we should actually do, it, it, do anything. And I would argue there isn't, we can't really do everything. Anyways, two little teardrops were floating down the river of life. One teardrop asked the other, who are you? I'm a teardrop from a girl who loved a man and lost him. Who are you? The first teardrop replied, I am a teardrop from the girl who got him. Uh, I knew there would be a delayed reaction with that one. You see, life is a lot like two teardrops. We cry over things that we can't have, and we cry twice as hard over things that we end up with. Contentment has a lot to do with our perspective. It does. We struggle with contentment because our perspective or our viewpoint is autofocused. In Philippians chapter 4, Paul places Jesus over every circumstance. Paul knew that his strength, his life, his hope came from Jesus. He knew that focusing on Jesus was far more valuable and life-giving than focusing on what was going on in his life. Why do we misquote Philippians chapter 4, verse 13? Because we mistakenly focus on our circumstances rather than giving our undivided attention to Jesus. Here's what happens. We often have our eyes on Jesus, and then something happens in our life that is not so nice. It's not so pleasant. And then we go, oh my, look what's going on in my life. And we pull other people in and say, look at what's going on in my life. This isn't fair. This isn't right. This shouldn't be. How can I make this different? And we're focusing totally on the circumstance, and we've forgotten that we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. We quickly want relief or victory or success over our problem or affliction or challenge. And tragically, we declare, I can do everything. And we pull on our bootstraps and pull them up. And we put on our boxing robe that says Philippians 4, 13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And we plow through whatever we might be going through. You see, the fuel for contentment, though, it is birthed from a deep-seated trust in God. A deep-seated trust in God manifests itself as contentment in our life. And contentment is fueled in our life from, yes, the deep-seated trust that we have in God, but it is also fueled from abiding in Christ. And this is the part we all struggle with, including myself. Waiting on God. Waiting on God. Because if you go back to discontent and discontentment, it is often birthed from our reluctance to wait. 
I'm going to make something happen whether it kills me or not. I'm going to change things in my life. No matter what it costs me, I'm going to do it. Rather than a deep-seated trust in God breeds contentment in our life that is fueled from abiding in Christ and we wait on Jesus to figure things out for us. Paul understood the value of what Jesus was talking about in John chapter 15. This is what Jesus said, I am. He made a lot of I am statements in the, in the New Testament, in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. He said, I am the way, I am the bread of life, I am the water. But here he says, I am the true grapevine, and my Father is the gardener. And then in verse 2, he cuts off every branch of mine that doesn't produce fruit. And he prunes the branches that do bear fruit, so they will produce even more fruit. Then he says in verse 3, you have already been pruned and purified by the message that I have given you. So Jesus is telling his disciples, he's saying, I've already been doing some discipleship work in your life. And then in verse 4, this is what Jesus said. Remain in me and I will do what, church? I will remain in you. For a branch cannot produce fruit if it is severed from the vine, and you cannot be fruitful unless you do what? Unless you remain in me. And then Jesus made this statement right here in verse 5. Yes, I am the vine, and you are the branches. Those who remain in me, and I in them, will produce what? Much fruit. But listen to this next statement. For apart from me, you can do what? You can do nothing. You can do nothing. And yet we go around quoting Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. I can do everything through Christ who strengthens me. And we are doing it in a selfish way. When Jesus is saying, if you have a deep-seated trust in me, you have a manifestation of contentment, and you are abiding in me because you realize, apart from me, you can do what, church? Nothing. Despite the words of Jesus, apart from me, that you can do nothing, we continue to strive in doing everything on our own. When in reality, we can do nothing apart from Christ. Paul knew and understood the truth of abiding in Christ. We see it in his near-death experience in Acts chapter 14, verses 19 to 20. They pulled Paul outside of the city and they began to stone him. They want to execute him. After the dust had settled and the people had left, Paul rolls the stones off of him. He makes his way back into the city and the next day, before the sun's up, he leaves town. We see it that he was not concerned about his circumstances. He was concerned about honoring Christ and where Christ wanted him to go. We see it in Acts chapter 27 and 28. He's on his way to Rome on the Mediterranean Sea, and there's a northeastern wind that comes along. It's a huge storm, and they go for weeks in this storm. And it tells us for 14 days they had eaten nothing because the storm was so violent, and, and people were sick, and they thought they were going to perish. And Paul said, Never once did he say in Acts 27, 28, do we ever hear Paul saying, man, God's got me in a mess. I don't know how I'm ever going to get out of this. No, here's what we find Paul saying, not talking about the circumstance, he's talking about the providence of God and the provisions of God. If you will listen to what I have to say, God has spoken to me, and this is what he has said, we must all do this. After 14 days of not eating, he said, everybody, eat something. Because tomorrow morning, we will be on the shores of Malta, and not a soul will be lost. You see, Paul 
didn't talk about so much his prison. He didn't talk about his shipwreck on Malta. He didn't really talk a lot about being um, beaten or trying, being uh, spoken to in, a, in an ill manner. What he kept saying was, focus on Christ. Don't focus on your circumstances because Christ will always bring you through your circumstances. You don't need to do anything about your circumstances. Just trust Christ. That's why he says in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, I can do everything through Christ who gives me strength. I put my trust in Him. I have a deep-seated trust in, in Christ. He has the ability to help me. He will give me contentment so that I won't look at my circumstances. I'll just keep my eyes on Him. I will abide in Him because nothing I can do nothing apart from Him. Amen? Paul knew that he needed to seek God first. He knew the words of Christ in Matthew chapter 6 when Jesus said this in his teaching. He said in Matthew chapter 6 verse 31, so don't worry about these things saying what will we eat or what will we drink or what will we wear. Then he said in verse 32, these things dominate the thoughts of unbelievers, but your heavenly Father already knows. God already knows what you need. God already knows what you're going through. God already knows all about your circumstance. Do you think God doesn't know your circumstance before you even tell God your circumstance? He already knows. He knows everything that you need. Then Jesus went on to say this in verse 33. He said, seek the kingdom of God above all else and live righteously and he will give you everything that you need. And then in verse 34, so don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will bring its own worries. Today's trouble is enough for today. Jesus was talking about worrying less and trusting God more. That's contentment. Worrying less, trusting God more. And Jesus gives us the secret sauce for, for a life of contentment to live out in Philippians chapter 4, verse 13. Here's what Jesus said, three things. He said quickly from, from Matthew 6, he said, trust God to provide. Trust God to provide everything. Everything. Trust God to provide. Then he said this. Jesus said, first and foremost, you must seek God above all what? Above all else. Before you bend the ear of a friend. Before you go to the physician. Before you go see the banker. Before you have an important conversation. What is Jesus saying? He's saying, seek me above all else. He doesn't say not to have conversations that's going on, but he's saying the first place that we should go is where? To Jesus. The first place that we should go is to Jesus. The first place that we should have a conversation is with Jesus. The first place that we should tell Jesus what's going on in our life, it's Jesus. He, we must seek him above all else. And then he says this, he says that we must live righteously. We cannot live righteously unless we trust God to provide everything and seek Him above all else. So let me ask you some questions this morning. Are you trusting God? Are you trusting God? Are you seeking God above all else? Are you living righteously? Unfortunately, whenever we misquote a Bible verse, like Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, we are desperately trying to make that Bible verse fit our life. To fit our advantage to be to our advantage, to fit our liking. But do you know what God's constitution is designed for? His Bible? It's not designed for us in the sense to fit our life, to fit to our advantage, to, to be to our liking. No, 
God's Word is for God's purpose and His kingdom and His will. And we're just, I'm thankful that we're able to be part of that. Well, when we misquote Bible verses, we often pull this Bible verse and say, I'm going to claim this to my advantage. I'm going to claim this verse to my liking. This will fit in my circumstances, and it will help me get through my circumstances. We often misquote Bible verses to selfishly promote ourselves. Someone once said this, the person with the discontented heart has the attitude that everything he does for God is too much, and everything God does for him is too little. That's a powerful statement. That's discontentment right there. When it comes to Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, are you misquoting God's word? Are you misquoting his constitution? Are you trying to make the verse fit your life and your will and your ways? Or are you seeking to have your life lived out in the verse that God has given you? There's a story called The Stonecutter. It goes like this. Once upon a time, a stonecutter lived all alone. Though he had acquired great skills, he was very poor. He lived in a tiny bamboo hut and wore tailored, or excuse me, tattered, tattered clothing. One day, as the stonecutter worked with his hammer and chisel upon a huge stone, he heard a large crowd gather along the streets, and the shouts he knew that from the shouts he knew that the king was coming to visit his humble village. Joining in the procession, the stonecutter gazed at the king, who was dressed in marvelous silk. He was greeted by his subjects. Oh, how I wish I had the power and glory of the king, he thought. He has soldiers at his command. There is no one more powerful than the king. His cry was heard in the heavens, and immediately the humble stonecutter was transformed into a powerful king. He found himself riding on a great horse, waving at the crowds of people who had flocked to see him. This is power, he thought. As the summer progressed, however, the new king watched the effects of the heat upon his people. Men and animals became weary, and plants withered under the powerful rays of the sun. And as he looked at the sky, the new king realized that the sun was more powerful than any earthly ruler. How I wish I were as powerful as that, he thought. I wish I were the sun. And immediately, his wish was granted. The stonecutter relished his new role as the sun. He gloried in the power he felt as he surveyed the kingdoms below. He sent his bright rays on the earth. He watched kings and princes hide under their umbrellas. He watched as powerful warriors became weak under his gaze. Even the crops in the fields were under his command. Then one day a tiny cloud moved over the land. Shielding the earth from the sun's bright rays, seeing that there was something more powerful, he thought, I want very much to be a cloud. Again, his wish was granted. Now he blocked the sun's rays and felt important. He gathered all his strength, became a gigantic cloud, and began to pour down rain on the earth. Rivers formed where previously there were no rivers. And water flooded the streets and cities and the farmlands below. Everything, trees and animals and people, seemed to be awed by his power. Only the massive rocks were unswayed. There is nothing, he thought, as powerful as a rock. Oh, how I wish I was a huge stone. His wish was granted. As stone, he remained motionless and powerful. 
unmoved by the sun and wind or rain. He felt exempt from all the forces that shaped the existence of those around him. Then one day a man approached, carrying a bag, and when he stopped, he pulled out a chisel and a hammer and began to chip away at the rock. Realizing that the man with the tools was more powerful than the rock, he cried out, Oh, how I want to be a stone cutter. And once again, the heavens heard his cry, and he became a stone cutter. Once again, he lived in a bamboo hut and made his living with a hammer and a chisel. But this time, this time, he was content. I think we see, you can see probably you in that story. If I could only be this, I would be so different. And then once we reach that, oh, if I could only be that, then my life would be different. And once we achieve that, we go, oh, if I could only be that. And somehow God brings us around to say, you know what? All you need is me. Me. At the center of your life. To be content. Keep your eyes on Him. Amen. Have you misquoted Philippians chapter 4, verse 13 to your advantage? I'm sure you have at some point. Have you been misquoting God's Word? Don't. Because misquoting the Bible does have consequences for us, for others, and for God and for eternity. Would you close your, close your eyes and bow your heads this morning? If you're watching online, I would encourage you to do the same. And this moment of reflection and spirit of reflection this morning perhaps there's a few people in this room and watching online this morning that you feel like you know what pastor i have been so discontent i have been trying this and i thought if i could have that and once i get that then i'm still discontent and this morning i think i've heard i'm called to keep my eyes on christ that i need to have a deep-seated trust in God's ability for my life. And out of that deep-seated trust, I, I need to, to show manifest contentment. And that contentment comes from abiding in Christ, knowing that I can do nothing apart from Him, that I need to wait on Him and trust Him and stop looking at my circumstances and begin to look at Christ and Christ alone. If that's you this morning, I'd encourage you to stand as a means of confession and as a means that you are meaning business and you are going to change your ways and your focus is going to be on Christ and Christ alone. If that's you, just stand. Some have already. If you're at home, I'd encourage you to stand as well. This is about trusting Him and trusting Him with everything. And when we do, to be content that He is able to help us through whatever may come our way. Father, we thank you for those who are standing in this room and those who may be standing online today. We thank you that you are a gracious and loving God. We thank you this morning for the words of the apostle and realize that many times we misquote Philippians chapter 4, verse 13, and we misquote it to our advantage because we want to accomplish something that we have a desire to accomplish. Or we want to achieve something that we want to achieve, but it has nothing to do with you. Lord, this morning when we back up the bus and look at the context of the chapter, we realize that you, Paul, 
the apostle led such a great life and such a great example of what it means to trust, deeply trust God, and how that overspills and will spill over and manifest itself as contentment in our life. There are some of us here today who need to be content with you and content in you and content with your ways to trust you fully and wholeheartedly. Lord, we've been down the path of being discontent and we've never have a, a fulfillment or a filling way of living and being in that spirit of discontent. Today, we're asking you, Jesus, to give us a deep seated trust in you to show contentment as the manifestation of our trust in you and believing that whatever comes our way, you will give us the strength to overcome those things. In your name we pray. Amen.